Welcome to Socialist Think Tank. My name's Paul Daly. On this episode, we had the opportunity to speak with Alan Margem, the Secretary and President of the Durham Miners Association. We asked him why he identifies as a socialist, what he believes socialism is, and what his hopes for the future are on socialism. In my view, socialism represents people working together, people working for each other, for the common good. Um, socialism means what it says, you know, socialism. We're, we're social animals. Human beings are social animals. Um, and it seems to me quite natural uh, to adopt that. In our communities, in working class areas, we've always had socialism without, without knowing it probably. It wasn't called socialism, it was called community, community spirit, and a variety of other things. I became a socialist because I saw the inequalities, particularly when I started work. It brought it to light that there was massive inequalities. We had governments attacking working people for fighting for the right to work. We had protests on the streets in the in the 70s and the 80s, uh, everything from challenging racism which is a, a sign you know that's a it's a sign of the capitalist system it's a part of the capitalist system we saw people fighting for the right to work marching for the right to work we had millions of people suffering around the world you know while people some people were getting richer and richer and richer with wealth that that would never spend in a million lifetimes and yet you saw the such an inequality where on the one hand you saw that, you saw the rich getting richer and the poor getting poorer, people starving, people not even having the basic human dignity of having a job. And that's what made me a socialist. And I remember an old friend of mine, Stan Pierce, who's sadly no longer with us, we were sitting discussing this one time, and I says, I wonder what makes us different. What makes us different uh, or appear different to everybody else? We're, we're in this bracket, we're socialists self-identified as well and he says well soon i'll tell you what it is conditions determine consciousness and that's so true and it's still true today you see people who are still suffering in a wealthy country the fifth wealthiest nation fifth richest nation on the, in the world and we'll see people having to use food banks and included in that are lots of working people lots of people who are working and cannot earn enough money to support themselves and the families to me, that's just inherently wrong. It's just wrong, and that's what makes me a socialist. And I'm, I'm more committed now than ever, I think. Um, because, we, yes, we get the scare tactics from the capitalists, from the, from the, the, you know, the bosses' press and all the rest of it. The, the sort that, you know, being a socialist means... They use it as a derogatory term. I take that as a, you know... I take it as a, a, a term of endearment to me fellow human beings. I care about other people, I care about human beings, it's not about me, it's not about individuals, you know, which is what the capitalist system's based on. Thatcher famously said there's no such thing as society. I believe there is such thing as society, and I think it's all our duties to look after people less fortunate than us. We need to look after people, we need to make sure that they um, attain a higher standard of living, a decent standard of living, the basics, a roof over the head, food on the table, 
warm accommodation. What's wrong in a job? What's wrong with that? They should be allowed to have these aspirations of sending the kids to a decent school and getting a good education. They should know and have the security of having a decent NHS, you know, decent healthcare, a decent education system. Um, and that's, that can only be produced or provided through a social society because cap, by the very nature of capitalism means that everything's done for profit. We've had them talking about uh, privatising the NHS. What, making, making profits out of sick people. And that, that, cannot be, that just cannot be right in my view. So that's what makes me a socialist. It is rather simple. It, you know, it's a simple explanation. But that's what makes me continue to be a socialist. And I care about people. So as an individual, um, that's, the way, that's just the way it's got to be for me. And hopefully I can convince other people that that's the right road. You know... How, how can we have, on the one hand, you can have people with multi-billions of pounds, you know, lots and lots of money, all made on the back of working people, and yet the, the, those working people, some of those working people, don't have the what's now they consider a luxury of the basics that I, that I mentioned before. It just, it just can't be right. Um, we're always told as well, that socialism cannot work because it hasn't worked in this country, that country, this country. It's never been tried. Socialism hasn't been tried. It's been, and where it has been tried, um, the capitalist, the big capitalist countries have made sure. They, they've stamped down, they've introduced blockades, they've introduced uh, retaliatory measures against people who seek self-determination through socialism. But we're always told that um, capitalism to solve everything, the market, the free market and solve everything. Well, it didn't solve the financial crisis in 2008 and it hasn't solved this, this coronavirus pandemic. They've had to use state intervention and basically that's a part, that's a part of socialism. The state, the power of the state defending its, 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 uh, its citizens. So it appears now that we've got loads of socialists in government. <laughs> you you mentioned there the coronavirus and uh, the, the reaction of the government to that. How do you feel about um, like the fact that for years and years in education and in other areas, we've been told that like, if, you've, if you've become a cleaner or if you become a manual labour, then somehow in the academic system, you've failed. And then all these people are now being defined as key workers. And we've recently seen a vote where um, anyone who earns less than £25,600 is now classed as unskilled by the government. Now, there's a lot of very, very skilled people who have jobs that earn that amount of money. So um, how do you feel about this, this new definition of, of key workers that we always knew were really important? So people who uh, clean the refuse, people who clean buildings and schools and hospitals, all these really important key jobs. How do you think that fits in with the socialist system and how must those people be feeling now uh, that they are both classed as key workers and as unskilled? Yeah. Well, we've always known, we've always known as socialists 
who the important people in society are. You know, the, the refuse collector, the nurse, the, the nurse is a skilled profession, the refuse collector, the checkout assistant on a, or the, the shelf stacker on a, at a supermarket, um, and the, the, the list goes on. We've always accepted, we've accepted that they are the necessities that we need in life to make the rest of us have a, a relatively decent life. They keep our streets clean, they keep our, our hospitals clean, they, you know, they keep our schools clean. I think it's derogatory to say that the unskilled, what skills has a politician got that stand on the feet and, and rant a bit? You know, I mean, uh, you know, what skills has Boris Johnson got? What skills has lots of them got? All well, right, some of them are lawyers, some of them are, you know, from the, the professional classes. What skills have they got? Because whatever skills they've got, they're not utilising them very well because we're in the right state and, you know, the company's in the right state and that's now to do with coronavirus. I'm talking about these skilled people who manage the economy that led to the biggest collapse the world, the financial collapse the world's ever seen in 2008. Um, they still don't know how to handle this coronavirus, you know, the implications or the possible implications of uh, coronavirus. So I would just say, you know, I, I don't need somebody standing at the dispatch box in Parliament. What I need is to make sure that if I'm ill, I go into a hospital that's clean, that my kids or my grandkids go to a school that's clean. And I'm not deriding people who are, have got skills. That's great. But as a socialist, I place, I place a great importance on these so-called unskilled workers. We didn't need politicians during the coronavirus. What we needed is nurses and porters and hospital cleaners and doctors and specialists. We need teachers to teach our kids, give them a decent standard of education. Um, so that's what we need. So it's about time. I hope it's not forgotten. When all this is over with, when, whenever that may be, I hope, you know, Clapham's great. On a Thursday night, Clapham for our key workers, that's brilliant. Doesn't feed the families. It doesn't stop the nurse or the, the cleaner or the, the teacher going to food banks because they can't afford to feed the families. Now, that's got to stop. No fact, socialism, that's great. That's brilliant because that's what we need to do. And we need to bite the bullet. We need to bite the bullet. We're told by the capitalists. The Labour's manifesto in 2019, unaffordable, can't afford it. Yet now there's a crisis, they're borrowing billions, borrowing billions of pounds, which is exactly what the Labour Party would have done because we'd identified that there was a crisis in our education system, there was a crisis in our NHS, there was a crisis in society that needed to be redressed. These issues needed to be redressed. The only way we would do that was by borrowing money. It's a bit ironic that the government said we couldn't afford that afford to borrow billions now and I'm not criticising them for borrowing the money I'm not criticising them at all That's, that was the way forward but it was the way forward prior to December 2019 as well there is a there is a way of borrowing money as well isn't there so you can you can borrow money in, and it can help the people or you can borrow money and it can help the banks and actually the coronavirus crisis is seeing that once again the biggest the most the most um, wealthy people in society have already benefited more from this coronavirus crisis than anyone. And how important is it that working, working class people, people who have to go to work every day, the key workers, don't pick up the tab while 
you know, the very wealthy in society really make a killing on this. That's right. I mean, one of the things that comes, you know, comes to mind, whenever there's a rebuilding job to do, whenever there's a rebuild, out of every crisis, they need to invest money somewhere. And they'll invest the money in the like, with the likes of Dyson to build ventilators. They'll invest it with the friends. The rich get richer every time, whether that's war, famine, wherever it is, the rich always get richer because the capitalist class look after themselves. I would be borrowing that money. If I was in government, I would be borrowing that money to rebuild our, our housing estates, to rebuild our communities, to give people hope, to give people a decent standard of living. That's what I'd be borrowing the money for. And that's, that's, the way, that's got to be the way forward. And I hope, I really hope that at the, end of, at the end of this current crisis, people don't forget that. But it is possible. You can borrow money. It costs now. Now, with interest rates at 0.01% or whatever it is, that can afford to borrow that money and it would afford to borrow billions more. But I think that, you know, it needs to be directed where it's needed, not into the hands of multimillionaires or billionaires. With, you know, sick the death of, of uh, subsidising them. All my life, we've subsidised them. Um, you know, I just think, going back to the, the original, you know, the first part of the discussion, when I was a kid, I was brought up in, in Sunderland, working class area in Sunderland. You either work in the, most of them either work, most of the people either work in the pits or the shipyards. That was the two major in, engineering and the, and, the, and the pits. And I saw, I still saw poverty. I didn't realise it. I mean, what, what brought, brought it to mind to me was um, a few years ago, my mum died, my stepdad gave us a, a load of photographs that my mum had. Uh, and it was a me, my two brothers and my sister. And uh, they were, we were just at home in a place called Ellis Road in, in Southwick in Sunderland. And I remember showing it to, the, to a couple of the grandkids, these black and white photographs of the four of us, uh, or the dog that we'd got, the little puppy. And uh, one of the grand, one of my grandkids said, "Granddad, when you were little, were you poor?" Well, I <laughs> reflected for a little while, and then I thought about it, and I thought, "I, we were, we, but I didn't feel poor because everybody else was in the same circumstance. Everybody that I knew, my friends, a group of people that I knew and brought up with, were all the same. Basically, we were." Nobody had out, but what they did have, and this is the, the socialism in action, I remember being sent next door or over the road, asking for a, a bit sugar, borrowing a bit sugar, borrowing some tea, borrowing milk. And they used to do it was the, 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 the neighbours would come, and, you got a bit, and if you had half a pint of milk, you'd give them half of it. If you had a bit sugar, you'd give them a little bit of it. You know. And that's the way we worked. And that's, again, that's, that's socialism in action. Good community spirit. Uh, I will power. Yes, we will power by the dear standards. Cause, and that came out of the mouths of, of babes, really. And that was due to the way we were dressed. We were power. I we were. But I had a rich life because I was, you know, just the security of having a roof over my head, a mum and dad that loved us and, and shared with us things and... Um, just normal family life, uh, but we were still poor. My dad worked all his life. My mum worked when she wasn't bringing us up. My mother worked, and it was just this: this is what you did, 
and that, that gave me a, a sense of, as, as I grew up and I thought, people shouldn't, shouldn't be like that. Everybody should have enough without having to go into the, the you know, because it was a regular occurrence, borrowing this, that, and other. It was just a regular occurrence. Um, everybody can run out of something. But that was like socialism in action. And arts. It, it's, it's hard to put into words, but it was a brilliant way of life. We didn't have out, but at the end, we were happy. You know what I mean? It was, and then when, as I got older, I just thought, I'm going to be treated like that. I'm going to rebel against this. And I probably didn't even know, at the beginning, didn't even know what I was rebelling against from being like 13 or 14. But you do, you get this rebellious streak and you think, nah, that's wrong. And then, of course, when I started work, I met lads, my men, older than me, who was putting things in perspective. And they were saying, what you, what you, what you're talking about, sitting just having a pint, or sitting at work talking to them, say, what you're talking about is socialism. That's what you're aspiring to. I wasn't clever enough or I wasn't educated enough to articulate and understand what I was articulating, but that's what it was about. And then I realised, and then you start reading, and then you, you know, I started going to meetings and talking to like-minded people. That made, us, that made me a socialist. The circumstances determine my consciousness uh, with the help of people who'd lived a lot longer and went through more than I had. Um, so hopefully I'm in the situation now where I've went through what they went through, similar circumstances, and pass that on to the younger generation of people. So um, you got involved with trade unionism when you, when you became a minor. Um, yeah. So was that very early on in your... In, in your mining career that you got involved with trade unionism? Yeah, I was, uh, I, would, I mean, the first thing you had to do when you, when you joined, when I, went, when, I went to the, when I went to the pit, you signed the papers and one of the conditions was you joined the, the relevant union, the National Union of Mine Workers, which I did. And uh, for the first two or three months, I wasn't active in the, in the union. Uh, didn't get into branch mate, the lodge meetings and such. And then there was one day a lad called Eddie Cable, who was one of the agitators of the NUM at, at Weymouth. Uh, Eddie Cable sitting in the canteen, group of us sitting around before we went on shift, before we went underground. And uh, he came up and he had these, uh, these papers, uh, magazines. It's called The Collier. It was actually produced by, in Yorkshire by the Socialist Workers' Party. And it was called the Collier. And he says, uh, buy one of these, me a 10 pence. And I says, oh, I've got no money. I, says, I bring enough money to work just to buy a, a cup of orange and a piece of, piece of pie or whatever. Um, he says, well, you'll tell you what, tell you where, have a look at it, read it. Um, and if you think it's worth it, give us 10 pence, give us it tomorrow. And he says, by the way, do you want Joe Gormley's job? I says, no, I didn't want Joe Gormley. Joe Gormley's the president of the union, just won a massive strike, in, or two massive strikes in 72 and 74. Do you want Gormley's job? I says, no. And he said, uh, you need, have you been to a lodge meeting? I says, no, I haven't been to a lodge meeting. He said, this must have been on the Monday or Tuesday. And uh, he said, we think about it. He says, and if you like the paper, I'll, I'll get the 10 pence off you tomorrow. So the following day, he came in, and I gave him the 10 pence. And he says, what about coming to the, the Lord's meeting on Thursday night? I said, where is it? He says, well, it's at the, 
that was in the old canteen at the time, which was on the main road, Southwick Road, uh, in those days. He says, I'll come and he says, I'll meet you at the bus stop, which is right opposite the pit canteen. He says, I'll meet you. So I went, I went to the first meeting, and then afterwards, he says, Oh, are you having a pint? Because we always have a pint. So I went to the, the Demi, the Democratic Club, had a few pints with them, and sitting cracking on, and then I just got hooked. I just got hold of us and I went back. And I remember going back to my wife at the time that she says, did you enjoy it? I says, oh, I think I might have something to offer these. You know, I might have something that I can do. And from then it was the rest's history, if you like. I mean, it was just like, I started going, getting in, I got involved. I got, I was elected to the Lodge Committee in 1979, I think, or 1980. And then it just went on from there. And then of course, we went, um, I met the likes of Davey Opper, I met uh, Stan Pierce, Jack McAuliffe, and a number of, Harry Dinan, a number of people who were all involved in politics. Uh, and it was in 1978. So one of them had said, are you in the Labour Party? No. Well, you've got to be in the Labour You should be in the Labour Party. Yeah. So I joined the Labour Party in 1978. So... My education really um, was through the trade union movement. It was through the labour and trade union movement. I learned more going to the pit and talking to people than I ever did when I was at, at West Southwick Secondary School. You saw all, all they were interested in is give you. I mean, I would read and write before I went to school. My mother, my mother taught us to read and write after a fashion as a as a five year old. Uh, I would read and write. I would count. I would, and the only alphabet and stuff like that. I'll put like little bits of sentences together and or little bits of words together and stuff. And all they did is they provided at that time an education for year to go to the shipyards or the pits. If you're stuck in, and I remember my mother saying, because my mother was grammar school educated through her dad. Her dad was a, an officer in the in the merchant navy. And she went to a naval school and so it was like a uh, and she went to a grammar school. And she said, if you stick in, you'll get a nice job in an office. That was it. That was, that was as much as, it, that's as far as it went. I didn't know anybody who went to university, my age group. Didn't know, obviously, must have been some, but not from our school. Not from our, there wasn't anybody that went to university until later on in life when they got made redundant and things like that. Uh, lots of them then decided they would go to university and they became teachers, bloody social workers and, and all sorts of things, probation officers. And, um, but that was the expectation. The expectation was that you'd get a job. It would be a manual job, either a skilled manual job, you know, an engineering, uh, or you know, you'd get an apprenticeship. That's, that's an achievement. But that was it. My real education occurred from going to the pit, from starting work through and onward. And I learned very, very soon, I learned, and the likes of Stan Pierce used to say, you never stop learning. It's a lifelong experience, you always learn. Um, I've always liked reading. So it is a lifelong thing, and I think that's important as a socialist. I think we need to, you know, you didn't just finish school now when you're 16 or 17 or 18 or whatever, and then that's it, into the world of work. It's such a wide world to have. And it should be ours. It should really be ours, you know. Um, and our 
We need to pass on to our work to the younger generations that the world's the oyster that have anything they want. Yes, it's a lot of hard work. Yes, it's a lot of um, studying. And uh, but if you're that way inclined, if you if you you know that it, if you're academically minded, should be allowed to go to university. That should be paid for by your grant system. If you're not, you should. Have, I'm a firm believer in your vocational training and put people in a, in a decent, well-paid jobs, unionised jobs with pensions and all the rest of it. Security, that's what it's about, and that's what it's about being a socialist, is giving ordinary working people, whether they've got a trade, whether they've got a profession, or whether they're one of the key jobs, as we mentioned earlier, the need security, job security, home security, security of education, health, and all the rest of it. And that can only be achieved through socialism. I've noticed um, when the Durham Miners Gala is on, you often have a really internationalist element. Do you feel like you've got more in common with workers in the other side of the world who are doing the same job, as coal miners around the world? Do you feel you have more in common with them than you do with someone like Boris Johnson, who's always been um, in a very privileged position? Undoubtedly. I mean, I've, I've to the point, where now when I see, you know, you see on the news, oh, there's been a, a, an explosion in a coal mine in China or Russia or South Africa or anywhere, it hurts. It hurts. You know, they're, they're our brothers and sisters, and I've got, you know, and I'm not interested in, I'm not bothered of, of you know, the colour of somebody's skin, the religion, what, which country they're from. You know, the human beings and the fellow trade unionists, the fellow coal miners or fellow shipyard workers and, and engineers and plumbing labourers or wherever they may be, I've got more in common with a coal miner from South Africa than I have with the privileged elite who went to Eton or Harrow or wherever. I've got more in common. They work, their fellow workers and they, they mean something to me. They, they, you know, um, I mean, you mentioned the gala and the, the internationalist, um, the internationalist themes. 1990, I remember we had uh, a group of South African miners, black South African miners, who came over and couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe the the wealth of this country. Something we took for granted. I mean, there was one stop with my mum, a lad called Jan Presley. Um, at that time, he was about 64, 65, he was due for retirement. He worked for De Beers. And I took him to my mother's house on the, on the Sunday. They arrived there on the Sunday, we had a couple of pints in the bridge, and then a way back to Sunderland. And we had, I think we had eight of the South African miners here. And uh, we had a couple of pints in the bridge. I took them home. I says, I dropped, we'll drop your suitcase off at my mother's and I quickly introduced him to my mother and my stepdad and I said oh this is my mum this is my dad uh, it's Mary and Bob and he <laughs> the whole of his state he was referring to them as mummy and daddy that's what he was calling them and uh, I took them to the club I took them down to Doctor Park Club on the Sunday afternoon I said oh, we're going down my club we're going down my club and we went down and he got a hell of a reception off everybody 
and had words with some of the lads in 84, some of the jokers, the practical jokers. So I didn't want any funny statements. You think it's funny, didn't say anything. You know, just leave it. He's a coal miner, he's a mate. Didn't. So we went, as we went, <laughs> we went into, the, uh, into the club and everybody just stopped and they looked. And then one of the lads shouted, like, well, Jimmy Dickinson, welder at Austin Pickers Gills. He shouted, oh, look at this. He says, Marjim's in with his father. <laughs> and everybody laughed. And then all came, loads of them came up and shaking his hand. And he couldn't believe it. He's never been in a, a situation where he was with, he was the only black man in the club. Sorry, there was another, there was one of that. So he, he just couldn't understand how he could be accepted. And everybody made a fuss of him. And every time he went, I said, I told them all his name, you know, this is Presley. And uh, whenever he went in the tie, Presley, and he said, Alan, how do they know my name? I said, you stand out, you know? And the, he says, oh, they're all friendly. I says, well, you stand out. You're the only black man in the club. Are you, are you comfortable? He said, I'm. He loved it, absolutely loved it. But it was a really poignant time. It was one Saturday. Uh, I says, what do you want to do? I said, I'm a way out. I said, I'm going out meeting the lads down the avenue down in Sunderland. So I'm going down for a drink with lads from the pits in the shipyards. And he said, I'd like to watch the rugby. South Africa were playing in, I don't know if it was the Five Nations or, or I don't know, World Cup, something. He wanted to watch South Africa. I says, well, you didn't stop me. I'm not sitting in the house to watch rugby on a Saturday night. I'm out. And he, he says, oh, I'll come with you. I says, well, just didn't worry, just... Stopping there. My mother was in. Bob was at work, my stepdad. My mother was in. Doing whatever she was doing. And uh, he says, no, no. And my mother got us to one side. She heard him. And my mother got us to one side. She says, what are you doing? I says, I'm going out. So I was living back. My mother's by this time. I said, I'm going out. I'm going out with the, the red lion. She says, he wants to watch the rugby. I says, well, they tell he's big enough. He can watch it. He, I, she says, do you know, have you got no sense? This is my mother. She said, oh, five foot, whatever. She says, have you got no sense? I said, what, what are you talking about? She says, you're asking him or you're telling him he can stay alone in the house with me. He's probably never, ever been in a situation where he's been in a room with a white woman on, a, on his own and her own. And I, Christ, that's right. The part I was still in full floor. And my mother, my mother had the, the foresight. She says, that's what's the matter with him. That's what's wrong. The system he's being brought up under, he, he feels totally uncomfortable. And I thought, Jesus, how wrong is that? How wrong is that? Anyway, he ended up stopping. My mother said to him, yeah, I'm getting steer. Just, I'm pottering about. Ignore me. If you want to, just let us know. There's the telly. There's the, the remote. Watch your rugby, which he did. But he was, he was scared because he'd never been in that situation. I just thought it was just yet another example of total inequality and inhumanity of capitalism. That's what it was. That's the capitalist system perpetrating systems like that and beliefs like that. And I just thought, that's just totally wrong. And it was practical experiences of inequality and prejudice and hate. Um, and it was just mixing with that group and then mixing with us and coming and being welcomed and 
um, is reflected year on year with, uh, at the gala. Because we've had Australian miners, we've had Chilean miners, we've had uh, representatives from various international political organisations. And it goes back a long, long way. I mean, I had Jim Larkin speaking in 1913 um, at the gala. So, it goes, you know, I'm proud to carry on that tradition of internationalism, of socialism, of anti-racism, anti-fascism. I'm, I'm proud that, we've got, you know, socialists have traditionally carried their, those banners and fought against that type of injustice. And that's what it's about. You know, if you think it's wrong, if anybody, any right-minded person who thinks that racism and fascism and, and he, that politics of hate is wrong, their place is in a socialist organisation to fight it. So, that's brilliant. Thanks, Simon. Um The next thing I want to ask you about is the Durham Miners Gala. Now, this year it has been cancelled due to the coronavirus, but we've... Um, you know, in the build-up to it, we had some Conservative MPs saying that they wanted to come to the gala, and I think they almost expected to be allowed to speak at the gala. Now, there are, you know, the National Union of Mine Workers and the Durham Miners Association, obviously there aren't, like, they aren't really as active as a trade union because there are no mines anymore. But um, you've become a beacon for trade unionists everywhere, and you've made the the Reminders Gala into a place where all trade unionists are welcome and celebrated, as well as looking at the traditional side of it as well with, you know, with the lodge banners and, and, you know, and everything like that. Why is it that um, someone from the Conservative Party who might not appreciate trade unions, might not like trade unionism, might have been absolutely openly critical of trade unions, why is it that they wouldn't be welcome at the Durham Miners Gala to speak <laughs> from the platform? Because anyone can come, of course, can't they? You can turn up and it's not really a, it's not really a problem for anyone of any political belief to come up and look at the, like, you know, turn up on the field and talk to people. But why is it that they wouldn't be invited to speak from the platform? I've <laughs> I made a statement some time ago to the BBC and it was totally misrepresented when I sat I was interviewed and I said that um, would never, because I asked if Boris Johnson be invited, I said categorically no, no way on earth will any elected Tory representative be invited to the gala as a guest of the, the DMA. I can't turn, he says, well, you can't stop and come to Durham. I said, can I stop anybody? No, but I want to stop anybody coming to Durham. I'm certain that there's lots of people who go to the gala who are not members of the Labour Party or not socialists. They come for the DL for various reasons. And that's fine, and they're welcome. They're absolutely welcome. But I'll st categorically state once again, there's no way any elected Tory member will be invited to the Durham Miners Gala by the Durham Miners Association. And the reason for that is, it's not dogma. Look at the history. I'd ask people, have a look at the history. Winston Churchill referred to us as rats, miners. Get the rats back down the holes. Thatcher described us as the enemy within. Boris Johnson has got a massive track record of actively opposing trade union, uh, trade union membership and trade unionists. The, you know, the Tory party have absolutely ripped the guts out of this country, out of organised labour. They closed shipyards in Sunderland because they were politically organised. They, uh, they had a strong trade union 
background. They destroyed the mining industry for the same reason. Why the hell would we invite any of them? Couldn't care less about the Prime Minister or any of others. They'll never, ever, ever be invited to the Durham Miners Gala. You know, the, 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 they've done the utmost to destroy our communities. Our they destroyed our industry. And I believe the reason for that was they saw the miners. Tories have always detested the mining communities, the mining industry. So they decided that the best way to destroy that organised labour and the militancy of the miners was they, they looked at it and they thought, well, which is the best way to get rid? They considered us dangerous animals. That's basically what they, 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 they considered us as. And the best way to get rid of a dangerous animal is to destroy the habitat. So they closed the pits. There wasn't any economic reason. It was base. It was just absolute pathological hatred of the mining unions that forced them or drove them to close the whole industry down. And in, in so doing, they got rid of our habitat and they thought we'd gone. They thought, that's it. They'll just go away. Well, in Durham, the likes of Davy Opper and Davy Guy had other, other views, secured funding from wherever that would get it to carry the, the Durham Miners Gala on. And it grew and grew and grew to the state that is now where we've got in excess of 200,000 people turning up. The biggest working class demonstration and rally in, uh, in Europe and probably the world. Um, and as you see, it, it's international. It's uh, within a bar people on, 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 um, on grounds of race or, you know, colour or whatever. People are welcome. People who vote Conservative for turn, turn, that's fine. Hope they have a lovely, lovely day. But there's no way that any elected Tory representative will ever be invited by the Durham Miners Association. You know, the lines are clear. It's them and us. That's my belief. It's them and us. And I'll stick with us. I'll stick with us, our communities, our people. And the, the elected Tory representatives can, can turn up. That's fair enough. Can I stop them doing that? Let them, let them come. Hope they have a lovely day. But not at our invitation. There are, um, there are people who consider sitting on the platform and speaking from that platform to be the honour of their life. There will be trade unionists who have, have done incredible things who will never have been invited to do that. So how arrogant is it and how little understanding does it show that they would think that because a couple of MPs were elected within the county that they should automatically be invited? Well, it's, it's, it's arrogance and ignorance in equal measure, I think. I mean, there's, there's some Labour MPs have never been invited, never been invited, never been on the platform, and, and you know, because their beliefs want it, they, they want it consistent with the our beliefs and the ethos of the Durham Miners Gala. Um, we invited Blair year after year, and he refused to come because he wanted to disassociate himself and the party from uh, the working class movement. Now, I think that's a, a, an ultimate act of betrayal. And there's people who follow him who will never invite, they're still in the Labour Party, and we'll never invite them because they didn't share our, they don't share our values. Um, so 
So for anybody to suggest that we should maybe invite some Tory MPs because they're elected representatives, weren't elected by the Durham miners. Um, I'd, I'd prefer, and I said it last year, um, that they ask about the VIPs, and they're certainly going to come into that category. But asked about the VIPs, the press want to know who's going to be the key speaker. Is this Corbyn coming? Is this one coming? And I, I wouldn't tell them. And I just they said, who's the VIPs this year then? I said the 200,000 people who march past the county and assemble on that field. They're the VIPs. That's my vision for the future of the Gala. It's by the people, for the people. And that's what it's going to be about. And the Tories have never, ever subscribed to that. If they like to Richard Walden or Deanna Davison or whoever else, they have come out and say they support the socialist agenda and the Tory government's been wrong. Thatcher was, was, was Thatcher wrong when she said there's no such thing as society? Will he apologise for the insults of, of Churchill and Thatcher and, and various others? You know, they've detested us from the, you know, for, for years, forever. They've detested us. Why the hell would we invite any of them to share a platform in a working class day? They're not of the working class. They're not part of us. And I want not to do them. I don't want anything to do with them. Um, let them get out to Henley, get and get the regatta or wherever. You know, we didn't get invites down there, so why should we invite the mayor? <laughs> it's just it's just crazy. The beggar's belief that they'll be so ignorant or arrogant to believe because the members of parliament have got a right to come to the Durham Miners Gala. Let them come as individual citizens or wherever. Turn up. That's, you know, not the day with me. They'll not be welcomed by me or by the Durham Miners Association, but if they do turn up in Durham on, on Gala Day, it'll be next year now. If they turn up, so be it. Well, they have a wonderful day, but they'll not be, at the, they'll not be coming at the invitation of the DM here. I wonder if they would like to maybe write to you about why they relate to something like the Chopwell banner, um, you know, and... and <laughs> The figures on that, you know, like Karl Marx and, uh, you know, I think Key Hardy's on that one as well. Key Hardy, Lennon, Marx. Lennon and Marx, yeah. So I wonder if they could, like, maybe appeal to the Durham Miners Association about why they would identify with a banner like Chopwell's and what about their politics, um, you know, identifies them as being, uh, you know, related to those those key figures and, and the Durham well, Miners Association. Yeah, I mean, when, when you look at the banners in, in Durham, there's a mixture. And you see the different periods of history. There's a mixture of religious banners, religious themes on some of the banners, uh, which date back to the early days of the, the association when it was run by uh, Methodist lay preachers. And so there's a strong Methodist religious connection between the DMA and the, uh, the, particularly the Methodist church. So you see a lot of that. And then you see, particularly after the 1917 revolution in Russia, and you see the move forward 30 odd year, 30 years from there, you see nationalisation of the coal industry in Britain, and you started getting the Chopwell banner with uh, Lennon, Marx, K. Hardy, the Follinsby banner, who's got, who've got, the, and they've got Amazon sickles on them as well. Um, and then the Follinsby banner, which has got the same characters on, and James Connolly, who they murdered in 19, 1916. You know, they murdered him. And, and so I, that would be, a, an interesting question would be, what have you got in common 
were these banners. What have you got in common with them? And are you saying you support that? And the political ideology behind them? Because that's what they are. It's a, it's a political statement. Um, you know, so, yeah, I think, I, I, I just think it's, it is really, really galling to me to think that these people, given our history, warts and all, that they would think they were entitled to be there. It's crazy. Absolute craziness. And I just think, as long as I'm here, there's no way. There's no way they'll ever get an invite. Um, but it would be interesting to note, or to, to say what they thought of these, because they're not just banners of, you know, the nice, the gear coloured, the lovely, you know, lovely works of art and all the rest, means a lot more than that. It actually, they represent the community and the struggles that those communities have went through, whether that's the religious thing, you know, where they look for higher power to, to deliver them from, from poverty and, and in, uh, injustice and, and all the rest of it, or whether it's the political messages of hope that, you know, we're not going to trust in God. The way most banners used to have in God we trust. Um, so there was a lot of that. And there's a place for that. Now, I'm not, I'm not criticising it. But there's also the political messages. Take the future into your own hands. You know, let's fight this system. It's an unjust system. It's, you know, it's divisory. It's, it's a horrible system. Let's fight to get rid of it. And that's portrayed in the banners. They're not just nice works of art. There's actual statements in those banners um, urging people not to accept the status quo and that there can be a better world. Final thing I'd like to end on is what is your message of hope for socialism? How do we get more people to engage with socialism and take it away from that ridiculous Bond villain style? That's what a socialist is to actually, you know, socialists are ordinary people who want fairness, who want equality. How do we change that public perception? Well, great difficulty, I think. I think, you know, it is difficult to get a message across when you've got, um, you've got the mainstream media who always, you know, a massive arm of the state, basically, in the capitalist system, constantly attacking us, constantly trying to undermine what we stand for and portray us as a born villain or a red under the bed. And, you know, the amount of times I've been, well, if you like Russia, why didn't you go and move to Moscow? If that's the only argument these people will come up with, um, whether you know it's not a very articulate argument, uh, and nor can they put it, they, they, they cannot even articulate a decent reason, a good reason why socialism is wrong. They just oh, they just borrow money. Yeah, all right. Well, yeah, so they just want to borrow money and make the country put the country in debt. We've had more years of Tory government over the last hundred and. 50 year than we have of Labour governments. So they've got to share the blame for the, for the inequalities in society. We've shared a duty to try and overturn that system because it is an unjust system, it's an unfair system. Whether you're a work, white working class kid from Sunderland or a black working class kid from London or Minnesota in, in the United States, we've got one common bond. We're being oppressed by the capitalist system. The one thing that does give me hope is seeing the amount of young people 
young people who come onto demonstrations, uh, whether that's you know uh, gear rights marches or you know or every year with pride and stuff like that. You see, you see loads and loads of young people. The Black Lives Matter recent protests, the ongoing protests, loads and loads of young people, black and white, um, marches for jobs and stuff. Young people, they're the future. They're the future. And I think our job is, as older people, is, say, my role, since it didn't become despondent, because you will be attacked, sometimes physically, but you'd be, certainly be attacked verbally through the press, through, through uh, social media. And that's, that serves two purposes as well. I mean, I think social media could be um, a massive force for good. Unfortunately, you've got keyboard warriors who can sit in front of that and insult people because they're black, because they're Jewish, because they're working class, because they're socialists. You know, they'll attack anybody they don't agree with and they can get away with the anonymity of uh, the keyboard warriors. Well, it could be a sort of, I think it is also a force for good and we need to use that. So my message to young people would be don't become despondent. The cause is right. The cause is undoubtedly right. Recent times have, have demonstrated that the state has got massive power, borrowing power. Now, what's wrong with the socialist government borrowing that money to put right the injustices that have, that have accrued over 150 years? What's wrong with borrowing money to build better housing? They did it after the Second World War. The country was bankrupt. Labour government nationalised the health service, well, introduced the health service, nationalised uh, the railways, nationalised the Blum and the coal mines. And contrary to, uh, to belief, to popular belief that they would have us believe, they were operating very, very satisfactorily. They were okay. Yeah, there was room for improvement. But you kind of tell me the train services wanted better under nationalisation than they are now. At least they had new stock, they had decent travelling arrangements. The trains more or less ran on time, uh, unlike this fiasco we've got now. Our energy suppliers uh, were all nationalised. Nobody can tell me that the bills are cheaper now than they were back in the day in real terms. You know, so it does work. So my message to, to younger people who hold the future is didn't become despondent. The cause is right. It, you know, it point, it would point to the, these recent times where uh, this government's borrowed billions, absolute, you know, unprecedented levels of spending to keep the capitalist system afloat. Why can't we borrow the same amount of money to keep a, a socialist programme afloat and do, you know, implement proper socialist programmes whereby people are secure, people have got decent education, got, the kids have got good education, they've got good housing to live in, they've got secure jobs, they've got pensions, they've got, you know, they've got a great NHS. It's all achievable. The country's a wash for money. It's absolutely a wash for money. The keeps saying we're skinned. There's more money in this country, the fifth richest economy in the world. Why can't we use that wealth for the benefit of the, the, the many and not the few, basically? You know, it's a bit of a cliche, but that's, that's the fact. We can use that money, we can borrow that money to make people better off. It's been proved in the past, state intervention works. That's a part of the socialist programme that I'd like to see.